Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Workplace Revolution with me, Sihle Bolani. One of the questions that used to be so easy for me to answer is, so what do you do? I had one answer because I did one clear thing, make magic in the corporate communication space. Now, like so many other young professionals, particularly black professionals, when I get asked that question, that answer is longer because so many of us have sought to amalgamate what we've studied with what our skills are, with our talents, our passion, our purpose, and of course, the inspiration that helps us feel alive. My guest for today knows all about that I do a lot life. Tori Somaloka is a management consultant, conversation facilitator, and radio host. She is also an MC who has hosted and facilitated sessions at events such as LeaderX, which is an annual leadership conference for business leaders and entrepreneurs. Tori, so welcome to the Workplace Revolution. Thank you so much, CK. I'm actually just, you know, when you're saying there that I do a lot, I'm calculating in my head how many hours of speaking actually just sort of uh, are able to slot in with the a lot that happens. Thank you so much for having me and, and a very good one to all your listeners. It's crazy, right? When you actually think about it, it's, I find I find so many moments where Estes and I think, yeah, I don't know. I think my plate might be a bit too full at the moment <laughs> because, wow, it's a lot, you know, and especially particularly with this year, but we'll get into that. Um, just to kick off our conversation, uh, won't you please tell us a little bit about your professional background? Sure. And owing to your introduction as well, thanks so much once again for that Uh uh, there's, there's, there's segments of it now that I think of it really. So there's the corporate side of it, which I'm a management consulting, specialized, a consultant rather, um, specializing in strategy consulting. So basically, you know, the art of what is your problem and how can we solve it? How can we best solve it for you using what we have at hand and, you know, what the client has at hand in terms of resources and information. Mm. That's that's sort of the one pocket of the, the consulting part. Within there is business analysis as well. So for many of my clients, I do take the role of a business analyst. For a lot of my clients, I also take the role of a project manager. Mm. So I think the art of consulting comes with being able to wear a couple of hats um, and sort of learning and, and, and what do you call it, consolidating experiences when, as and when you go. Mm. Then there's the broadcasting side of it. So I happen to host a radio show on Power 987. Um, this is, and I know people are already asking, what time, what time? At midnight, at midnight. <laughs> so this is between midnight and three o'clock in the morning or between three o'clock and six o'clock when I do stand-ins. And that is basically a platform where, you know, beginning of the beginning of my career path in my suite with my producer, that this is going to be an educational platform. This mm. is where we're going to have conversations about aspects of the African continent, all the way from the economy to politics, to arts, to culture, to language, you know, to neglected tropical disease, what is happening within the continent and how do we best educate ourselves and our listeners on those particular topics. So, and, and then of course there's the, you know, the emceeing and the conversation facilitation. I actually came across um, a word recently that I really like the title conversation strategist. I think mm. I want to adopt that. I like that. Mm, so that's, mm. that's, that's, that's about it. It's, it, I mean, it dabbles between corporate consulting, uh, broadcasting as well as conversation facilitation. 
I actually also really like that phrase now that you've mentioned it because that's exactly what it is. Um, you know, effective facilitation requires you to be very strategic about how you direct the conversation to be able to get the best out of it for the audience, you know. Um, but something very interesting for me that you mentioned with regards to the broadcasting uh, part of your career um, and your specific focus and zoning in on, on education. Why was that something yeah. that was so important for you, for your audience? I think, Sile, you know, actually what drove that, I think exposure is everything. Mm. Exposure is everything and, you know, my ability, privilege and blessing to be able to travel to a couple of African countries, as well as my ability, privilege and blessing to be able to, you know, I grew up, I'm from a village called Mametake, but I grew up between Pretoria and Mametake, even in Pretoria, I mean, between CBD, Pretoria, Sunnyside, as well as Pretoria with you, you sort of become, you sort of become accustomed to having conversations with people from diverse backgrounds. And you also get to realize how in many of the circles, we sit in circles and social circles where we almost live what in what we want to call an information bubble where very little information sort of is given to us you know willy-nilly or freely and a lot of it is by virtue of academic exposure by virtue of professional exposure and i i, I just learned that through my travels through my discussions through my social circles there's so much that i get a hold of that i have access to that i'd like to share with people that haven't had access to that with that said as well i recognize and realize that there are people who are doing work that i absolutely admire mm. and radio really gives that platform to be able to engage with those people you know under the name of the, the station itself but you're able to sort of just hone in in the chosen conversation and say what do we want to get out of this one mm. you know who are we trying to sort of send out the message to? i mean if you think of the audience that listens radio between 12 and mid, I mean midnight and three o'clock in the morning it's typically people that work night shifts mm. students that are studying so it's people who you know who information dissemination is quite an important thing to them and and to be able to have these conversations at that time I think is an absolute blessing be it SARS in SARS that is happening yeah. in Nigeria be it be it you know the the the, the Africa free trade agreement for example mm. those are that's the nature of the conversations that we have and I think it's an absolute honor to be able to have those in the most educational and the most accessible way. Mm, mm, absolutely. Now, you studied IT. Um, For my sins. <laughs> so when I, when I uh, was in, I think it was grade 11. Um, yeah. My mom, I was driving home with my mom from some school event and my mom was like, right, yeah. so it's time for you to start applying um, for university. What are you going to study? And I was like, yeah. oh, crap. I've never actually <laughs> thought about this thing, <laughs> you know? Um, and I mean, I matriculated in 2000, many, many moons ago. Yeah. Um, and I, honest to God, had no idea what I wanted to study because we just weren't exposed to careers in that way, you know, um, and also representation was a far bigger problem than it is now, um, for particularly young black girls. And so my mom was like, well, you know, there's this new booming career. People are very successful in it you should, you know, register to do IT. And I was just like, first of all, <laughs> I hate maths. What you mean? <laughs> I'm not interested in anything to do with computers. I just want to do the basics. <laughs> 
But I couldn't think of anything else that I wanted to study in. So I went and I registered for IT and I absolutely hated it. I skipped classes. I hated programming. Uh, I was just like, you know what, this is not for me. And eventually I dropped out and found my way into PR. But how did you know what you wanted to study? And what, what is it that drew you to that particular field of study? So I must say, first of all, I took a gap year because of the same problem. (laughs) I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, but I had a couple of influences, right? And, um, you know, my parents are going to hear this. I I love you guys. Sorry, but my boyfriend then was studying IT. (laughs) To my defense, I was also once, I was 17 years old in matric. I only turned 17 matric. I had every right to not know what I wanted to do. Same. I also was 17 in matric. (laughs) Absolutely. Now you're asking me how I want to make a living. I don't know. And she said the very next year was the World Cup. I had other important things to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, other than to sort of pick what I wanted to study. But I, I think there were influences around me. Um, what I always knew that I wanted to go to the University of Pretoria. That I knew because I think grew up, growing up in Pretoria, the geese rather is sort of sold to you as the place that you know you get to go to if you're doing really well um, academically. So that much I knew. Mm. At some point in my career, actually, law was my first, first first choice of study. My dad is in the field. I'm not sure if that was, you know, part of the influence. But I must say, I mean, my boyfriend at that time was studying IT, and I absolutely loved all the work that himself and his twin brother were doing mm-hmm. um, in terms of the bots that they build, in terms of the solutions that they come with, um, just the, the line of thinking. So here's another thing. I also, at that point in time, I was 16, 17, there were very few girls that I knew that studied uh, information science, information systems, and IT. And I don't know, man, there was just something about, there was just something about, I want to do something that is, that seems to be inaccessible to women. Mm. And, and I think that drove, that drove the doing well in the field because I just refused. I mean, constantly, I think in my first year class, for example, you could count the girls in the class. And as you go higher, remember the number reduces as well, because there'll be a Samantha that says, no, thanks, guys, it's not for me. Mm. Um, I, you know, I mean, I can absolutely attest to you, I hate programming. I don't like it. It's, mm. not, it's not in my personality type, maybe. But I think the doing well of it really just came from a corner of things like girl code and being in spaces where you can tell that, listen, I'm one of the few and there's also space to create space for others to come and let it be accessible. And Mm. like I said, I mean, I grew up in the village, so I've always wanted to bring things that are ordinarily inaccessible Mm. to the spaces that I I sort of grew up in. So Mm. I think that's that's what guided it. at 17, CK, if we go back to my matric results, I mean, my matric exams, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was writing my matric exams. Mm. And my grandmother and my mother decided, you know what, this is not going to happen. This is going to be a waste of money. So you are taking your gap year. It was the World Cup to my defense. So I had fun. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's not often that you hear stories about black families or black parents being like, you know what? We and we support the idea of, or we're championing the idea of a gap year, so that you can figure yourself out. You know, we are so used to always being subjected to the pressure of you've just got to keep moving. You know, you've just got to. Yeah. There's no stopping. There's no go because once you stop for one year or two years, then your whole life is over. Your career, you're gonna miss your chance. <laughs> absolutely absolutely and i mean you, in the same breath you could study something and decide that this is not for me three mm. years in mm. oh, I, 
So I, I think that if you're able to, if parents specifically are able to buy to buy their young ones time in terms of just decision making and walking the journey together, mm. I can tell you it did a lot for me and my confidence. And at the same, I need to stress this more importantly. I did not have funds to go to school. So mm. there was no privilege of a financial muscle, for example. Yeah. So that decision did not come from the corner of, oh, but then the funds we can travel globally, et cetera. No, that wasn't the case, but but we made the decision together. And I think we walked the journey quite successfully together. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. What have been um, some of the disappointing and exciting observations that you've had about firstly being an adult and then being a black woman <laughs> and then being a black woman in the corporate world? Sure. <laughs> Being an I hate paying my own bills, man. <laughs> Girl, me too. It is overrated. <laughs> Girl, I mean, that if, if I could just have some, you know, blessing from heaven, say, hey, I'll do this for you for the next six months or so. But I mean, at the same time, it, it's empowerment. Um, to be in a position where at my age, I look at where my mom was at, at, my, at 28, two completely different worlds mm. you know the idea that i've got a couple of passport stamps for example as mm. a black woman who grew up in a village who grew up in south africa who still watches black women my age who don't have half you know the opportunities that i have it's not only disappointing but it's it's it also gives just a moment of checking in mm. right and just saying you know how far i've come how far i can go how much space i need to create for others as well so some of the disappointing parts i'm going to be very open so i worked for a consulting firm previously that did not have i mean there was maternity leave policy somewhat mm. but it wasn't very encouraging because it was set up in such a way that for every year that you've worked for the company mm. you qualify for a month worth of maternity leave now this is consulting traditionally one works eight hours a day consulting multiply that by by a couple of hours and that is you know the daily expectation in order to meet client needs and how Mm. i would think of it is i mean if if someone is contributing so much of their life into this company and and uh, is billable as well you know at an hourly rate the least we could do say by virtue of natural progression you may take four months maternity leave. Those are some some of the disappointing policies. I mean, there was, for example, um, the MI Next movement last year that was mm. driven largely by you know gender based violence and the mm. curse, uh, cases that are happening at at that point. And I think one of my biggest pushes to resign from that particular company was led by the silence that came out of it. Mm. That you know companies do not operate as silos. Mm. No. It's not true. But if you're not going to be quiet about an issue where I, as a black woman, I, as a woman in South Africa, I'm one, I mean, there's one in three women that are impacted and affected by gender-based violence. You have X amount of women in the company and you're choosing to not even send out a note, yeah. a pamphlet, see, yeah. pamphlet to say we recognize what's happening. Um, you know, taking away from the fact that when these things happen, there are triggers. I may not be able to operate as optimally as I was Absolutely. as a result of me being reminded by what I might have been through or what a friend or family member has been through so those are some of the most disappointing things that i've experienced really like policies that are just still not accommodating towards us women as well as just feeling as though there are very few in as much as there's many there's many black women in corporate well there's quite a number of black women in corporate in senior corporate a lot of them still feel inaccessible Mm. and i think i found that harshly disappointing that um i actually decided to change one of my graduate programs to, to another company because I, I just felt they were here. They were here. 
mm. you know, in my immediate radius, but inaccessible mm. at the same time. Some of the things that really, really excite me, seeing more women in robotics, um, mm. seeing more women in data science, seeing, seeing women in, in, in STEM in particular, more women in STEM, in leadership um, sort of structures as well, mm. but as well as more women being able to take a secret leap of faith, for example, and say, I'm exiting the structure. Mm. I'm going to go do something that fulfills me that can touch far more people and something that will not make me speak in a very sort of guarded and, and what do you call it? Omitted way. Mm. Um, it just, it, it gives me light to see more women going independent. Mm, mm, absolutely. You know, it's interesting mm. that you mention um, the issue around, you know, organizations that will ignore what's happening um, in society and, you know, act as if, the workplace, uh, you know, exists within its silo. And this is one of the things that I, I speak a lot about um, when I have my conversations around meaningful diversity and transformation in the workplace. Because if you think about the fact that South Africa is one of the countries with the highest rates of gender-based violence, and you think about the mm. fact that it impacts black women more than any other group disproportionately mm-hmm. um and you also think about the fact that black women are the most underpaid group disproportionately and then you mm-hmm. also think about the fact that black women are the demographic group that is that has the highest number of single parents and single income homes uh which means that many black women have to go to work but don't have access to a car which means that many black women because of also apartheid spatial planning live very far away from work means that they must leave home at crazy hours which oftentimes means that they must leave home in the dark and come back from work in the dark and organizations just pretend that this doesn't exist instead of looking at how can we develop a solution to ensure that our employees are safe when they're commuting to and from work? How do we alleviate the stress that they're currently living with as a result of the fear of being, you know, a victim of gender-based violence? Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned something quite important there for me in terms of the the gender pay gap, and it's probably something that we'll touch on as we go as well that, you know, we speak of gender-based violence, but for me, one of the, the you know, the methods or typologies of gender-based violence is the gender pay gap in mm. itself. Mm. Um, and, 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 and to hear my male counterparts or my man counterparts at work in the workplace choose not to say anything about it, especially mm. in senior spaces, where it's also very evident where you look at, for example, the director's board. And you look at it, there's about eight of them, and it's six men, and it's six white, it's lily white, it's mm. a lily white board. Those are those are some of the the echoes for me that make it very difficult to to have a lengthy stay in an organization because you're clearly disconnected to the social issues of South Africa. You're running like a like a silo. You're not representative, you know, representative of the demographics mm. of the country. And quite frankly, all that matters is profit making and not so much of social investment. Mm. 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 Absolutely. So now you have studied, right? And now you are, you've graduated and you are getting into the world, exciting world of work. And obviously as a, a graduate, the first thing you think about is I'm going to have my own money and that's incredibly exciting. But <laughs> very few of us realize that the money comes with bills. But aside from that, um, very few of us actually have the opportunity to consider 
what being in the workplace actually means and what it actually looks like. So many organizations have graduate programs and various, you know, orientations that exist for people who enter the workforce, which can sometimes be very overwhelming. But these sessions also often don't do much to truly prepare new employees for the real culture within an organization, not the stuff that's on brochures and on website copy. What are some of the things that you know now that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? Sure. I mean, I first have to acknowledge that I I went through some amazing graduate programs in terms of the structure that was created. Mm. Um, I think, I I don't know who I need to thank for this, but I really need to thank whoever I can thank for, you know, just the the, the courage of writing what we can call a kick-butt cover letter that gets you the interview. Mm. And from there on sort of work along with with just confidence from there on, which is another thing that I don't think we talk up, talk enough about in South Africa, about how you look at the people that make it into graduate programs, typically from top four, top five universities. Mm. Secondly, um, laced with some sort of English accent towards it. That's another sort yeah. of con- con- contentious uh, part of it. And from there on, the confidence. It's, it, it can be highly confident. Sometimes the skills, I mean, it can be built along the time. Mm. Individuals. So that's the one part of it that I've, by virtue of all those aspects, I've, I've had the pleasure of being a part of some amazing graduate programs. Some of the things that I wish I knew before I even started, I can tell you. So I started with an audit firm. That was my first graduate program. The explicity of the explicitness of roles. What mm. am I going to do? What's yeah. my day to day going to be like? Because I can tell you, I resigned ten months later because it was just not adding up. Okay, mm. um, it, it was not adding up. It did not make sense. The culture did not make sense. My mental health was completely at stake. I had never had a low self esteem as much as I did during that particular period. Mm. But another thing as well, salary simulation. Mm. If you're telling me that this is how much you're going to be paying me annually hypothetically 250,000 rands per annum. Mm. Take that, let's simulate it. Let's simulate the numbers to the point of my expenses as well. Because I think a lot of us are sheltered by bursaries, right? Mm. Or parents in some instances, where now you're leaving that fiscal muscle to moving into a point where you pay for your own apartment, shared or not. Um, Mm. An audit firm, for example, consulting, typically it's quite difficult to move around in the absence of a vehicle. Mm. So you will go into a vehicle asset agreement with the bank. The mm-hmm. interest rates from there on as well. You know, mm-hmm. I, I remember, I, and I talk about this with, with my friends and now they laugh about it. And I say, when I purchased my car in 2015, I bought it at, I think it was 17.8%. And yeah. as soon as I refinanced it, I started paying, it was over a thousand rands less. I think I moved, I moved, I mean, I had just moved into the bank. So at that time it was prime, I think minus one or minus 2%. But those type of conversations, those are the things, it's not just about work. It's mm. about what uh, what are the other resources that work is going to extend for me? The financial muscle that work provides for me, where do I need to extend that? Can I survive? It's okay to decline an offer because you're not being paid enough. Mm. Um, and those are the, I think for me, that's the most important one. Cause part of the reason I resigned 10 months later is because I declined an offer from a banking institution, which came with global exposure for working for one of the top four audit firms, because that's what was sold to us as to be mm. the best thing that can happen to potentially your career as a starter. But I think the most, imp- what I wish I knew best before I started is also agree. I mean, disagreeing or rather not agreeing to send my pay slip pre-interview stages sometimes. Mm. I think I, I that's something that I'm still learning. 
to be a whole lot more assertive around my financial ask. Because if I'm being quite honest, and I look at my male counterparts, and I look at my my colleagues who are in banking directly, I th- I think I'm underpaid, mm. and I think I'm still paying catch up. So it's it's really a lot around the finance and what good looks like, and just also understanding that it's okay to resign sometimes if something's not working out. You know, we shouldn't be fixated to spaces where my mental health is in question, mm. where I don't see what good looks like, or where where I just don't feel represented. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I absolutely agree with you. Um, it's interesting because, I mean, I got my first job through a graduate program and you would think that all these years later, there would be some really meaningful advancements in terms of really helping young people, you know, I guess, get into the, the world of work and adult life with greater ease and with greater skills um, to really help them manage their lives successfully because work takes yeah. up a good chunk of our time and our lives. And it should be a lot more empowering as a space to enable us to kind of facilitate ease within the other areas of our lives. Um, yeah. But it just seems to be from a culture perspective, regressing, you know, when we should be moving forward with all of the knowledge that we have, all of the insights, the conversations that we're having a lot more openly but it seems that this resistance <laughs> to change is just kind of forcing us to go in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Now, 2020 has been a year that many of us <laughs> can't oh. even wrap our heads around. <laughs> <laughs> every time I have a conversation with somebody and they say oh so how are you I honestly I'm just like I I don't know <laughs> I honest to God one day is, is might be okay the next day might be a complete wreck yeah. because I can't wrap my head around what's happening but also the impact that it has had on my my career my finances my social life all of these various things the things that give us pleasure as well you know um, and yeah. having all of these various limitations, but also the fear of of getting ill, of, you know, all of these various risks that come with uh, a pandemic. What has mm. this pandemic revealed to you about the culture of work as we have known it? And what changes, if any, would you make to the workplace with that oh. in mind? Sure. And you know what's interesting for me about this question that, uh, and I mean, for, for the 90s babies, especially listening, I remember when we studied, and, and I mean, I, I want to believe that this spanned across um, industries and faculties, right? Mm. That we were taught about new ways of work mm. in school. So the most frustrating thing for a lot of us was getting into organizations and learning that new ways of work was a theory. Yes. So now the pandemic happened. And for a lot, of, a lot of us, it became a moment of how, guys, that we've spoken about, you've taught us this before, you know. It's, it's, it was a shocker for quite a number of us to see people much senior, than us, much senior than us be a whole lot more shocked around it. Mm-hmm. Whereas for a lot of us, it was a matter of, it didn't make sense what we're doing anyway, you know. Yeah. But with that said as well, I started a new job during the, during the lockdown, by the way, level five. Mm-hmm. And that meant I did not meet my colleagues at all mm. we're on client everything you know you you hit the ground running basically and just take it from there on but i think the biggest lesson that i've learned is the importance of intergenerational understanding if there is such a thing 
and to really just appreciate that we can learn from each other yeah. as as different generations it does not need to be critical and discriminative at all times let's identify sort of the downfalls of each and sort of work towards the the, the advancement of all because i can't sit here and not acknowledge that people far more senior and than i am teach me tact mm. teach me technicality teach me you know ways of ways of presenting myself my ideas uh, the the process in itself in as much as I would appreciate the acknowledgement that hey there's maybe a little bit more of an optimized way of doing things that can be brought in by by the new generation as as a result of sort of the inclination towards the use of technology. Mm. I I think that was the biggest thing for me but another thing that sort of brought it together was the 8 hours of work 5 times a week, the 40 <laughs> hours of work. Mm. I think it shouldn't be standard. You know, I don't think it should be standard. I think we should go back to time studies, man, and and to go back to 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 just assess each role and in, in its uniqueness. Mm. But as well as, I think the last point for me here is is, is camaraderie. Mm. How important it is to have team camaraderie. Um, by virtue of I don't know doing catch ups once every two weeks, once every week, depending on how much you know how much we can really intake. But work is not just about work. Work is a gift I I keep maintaining and is essentially I think we, you know, we should be working towards answering societal needs and just going back to one's why as to why are we here as a team? What are we trying to achieve? How is it going to impact society? And if it doesn't, maybe let's go back to the drawing board, but I think that just that the the nuances around the number of, of hours that are are we calculating hours? Are we cal- calculating productivity? Is it important to have stand-ups five times a day? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um so the other thing that um has really struck me about you know being forced by this pandemic to to work differently. Um obviously a lot of a lot of us have been in situations where we have had to work remotely. Um mm. and and this shift has put a big emphasis on obviously technology and conversations around data and wifi and how do you manage productivity from a distance um and collaboration within the workplace without face-to-face contact now those changes may not necessarily seem like a big deal to those of us who have access to unlimited wifi and have laptops and airtime or cell phone contracts and we have free flowing electricity at home you know it's like okay cool i just get to sit at home and work no big deal but what it has also done is that it's put a spotlight on the very real inequality that exists in south africa mm. um if we consider how many people have unreliable or unaffordable access to electricity the people who don't have access to wifi which many of us take for granted uh the people mm-hmm. who don't have disposable income and yet have employers who expect them to subsidize them uh by wanting them to use their own data to do work from home mm-hmm. never mind the fact that working from home means that your electricity usage increases um but your organization is not paying you more for those costs what i've seen is that many organizations were not ready despite all of the crisis plans all of the business continuity plans yeah. you know despite all of the this heavy investment of te- in technology for business enablement that we've been reading about in business day and everything else over the years 
there have been so many mm-hmm. advancements, but so many things went wrong when it came to being able to adapt to a, 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 an immediate change in the environment. What do you think organizations missed um, that made them unable to handle this crisis effectively? Um, do you think that we just don't know how to practically leverage technology available to us? Or do we just take our privilege for granted and not consider implications for marginalized groups? Sure. Which is, I mean, and I'm, I'm just noting as and when you're not, you sort of, you are identifying the, the various aspects, right? That I think the first thing that upset me, Sita, about this point, about this period and how we, we sort of moved towards, you know, remote working solutions was, I, if I, if I could run around the whole of South Africa and just ask people to do a lot of bit, a little bit of reading on spatial planning. Mm. You know, as a basically as a result of the apartheid government, mm. you realize things such as how, for example, it's not so easy to get Wi-Fi um, sort of connectivity. Mm. I mean, what do you call fiber sort yeah. of connectivity and fiber optic cables installed in the likes of Atrangeville, a rural, um, you know, a rural village somewhere, Soweto and the likes. Mm. And you look at the bulk of the people that that lived there, it's like people essentially. Hey, somebody might say through so, but that's not the point of departure. I think it, it was another highlight of of what historic measures in South Africa and how historic measures in South Africa continue to impact on the black community. That's mm. one. As the and the underprivileged com, um, I mean communities that is. And the conversation around the digital divide, because I might have Wi-Fi now, but I have a terrible device. Mm. And I keep hearing people saying about you know the the, the sort of the the what do they call the smartphone penetration in South Africa suggests that there's about two smartphones per person or so. The stats are something like that. I'm like, that's great that you put it like that. I might be totally and have five smartphones and mm. you find someone who has a smart a parent smartphone, but it's not, you know, they can't even sort of work optimally in specific areas or it can't down, download certain aspects. If you look at what universities did, for example. So my my cousin goes to University of Free State. And she, as soon as university is closed, she had to go home. Home is in Pumalanga. It's a village somewhere. Um, yes, we were able to make means for her to get access to the internet. Her laptop works, works um, feasibly. But we, you know, we were able to observe as well what other, her, her friends and her peers were going through in terms of the lack of access to certain, to, to some of those. I think another thing that organizations completely missed is that Organizations might have taken a blanket approach, right? Mm. Um, to say, ah, we all have space in our homes where somebody mm. can just create a, a study somewhere. Mm. Uh, for some people, it was not conducive to work from home. It is still not conducive to work from home. For some people, as soon as the officer said, hi, guys, you can come back, it was the most conducive thing you can do. That By virtue of space, mm. by, I don't know, living arrangements. If I live, for example, in an area that doesn't have fiber, Wi-Fi is, I mean, just data is is extremely expensive in mm. south africa mm. how do we do did we go back and have discussions with hr i know there are some companies that said no they're going to extend about 600 rands per person to each person for you know data expenses that's great and conducive for someone with fiber connectivity mm. for someone that has to buy data on a daily basis i probably need to press with another thousand rands or a thousand five so i think more than ever the conversation around data must fall has become utterly important. And I would be disappointed, utterly disappointed if corporate South Africa did not run that conversation um, going forward. But I mean, we also make a joke around it, you know, in in the different tech teams at work that COVID-19 pushed innovation and implementation more than any other project team has ever. 
because we were forced to respond rapidly. We were, we were forced to respond, you know, on the spot. But I would be utterly heavily disappointed if corporate South Africa did not sort of, um, you know, liaise with the with the mobile network pr- providers and operators to say data must really fall. Mm. 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 Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I think, you know, it's it's such an important thing because, yes, now we're on level one. Um, so many organizations have gone back to business as usual. I've seen so many people, you know, um, express concern or frustration around the fact that even though we've been through all of this, organizations have just are insisting on continuing to be very business as usual, to work in exactly the same way. So they haven't taken the opportunity to pause and learn from this experience and evolve the way in which they run the business. As a Mm. conversation facilitator, what do you think is required for us to be able to effectively have these conversations within our organizations and have them actually lead to action? Sure. I would think, I would think that, I would think that we carry the social responsibility of observation mm. and of, of identifying the blind spots. Because let's, I think let's be honest at the same time that there are certain things that no, we're a little bit oblivious to as humans in general. But I think as conversation facilitators, we really hold the social responsibility to observe to look in the room and say who's the most attended to, who's the least attended to, mm. and sort of find the missing middle there. So in any particular conversation that we're having, in the instance where we're having conversation conversations around social issues, what are some of the things that we're not pointing out? I'm going to make an example. So now, you know, in globally, we're dealing with COVID-19. And one of the discussions that I've sort of been having in my closer, you know, smaller social circles and here and there on radio as was the conversation around neglected tropical diseases in Africa, mm. that understanding the economic impact of COVID-19 grades, mm. do we fully understand the, 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 you know, the impact of malaria in, 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 what do you call this, in Malawi, for example, in Mozambique and the likes? Do we fully understand the, the, the impact of Ebola in areas where it is still ripe because it, it's not something that's completely, completely gone. And there's a whole list of neglected tropical diseases. And if we're able to conceptualize say, what what impact that on the economy COVID-19 has had, how are we not driving the same conceptualization mm-hmm. around other disease, neglected tropical diseases in sub-Saharan Africa that are sort of impeding economic activity, especially in countries. If we look at Malawi and it said, I mean, the, the, the informal sector, there, I think it's sitting at, at over 80%. Now, the minute a whole community is sick from a particular disease, what does that mean for the economic activity? It's almost non-existent because for it to be existent in an informal sector, such as that one, is that people have to be active at the markets people have to be healthy you know i remember one of the things that kept coming up um during this particular period was you know in order for the economy to run people have to be healthy and great can you go back to understanding that we've had sort of problems of our own and we continue to have those particular problems that need um that that need resolution so i think that as conversation strategists and facilitators Mm. it is our social responsibility it is our human responsibility to bring forth those aspects that are often sort of seen as blind spots or that are not seen at all, you know, to go be well-researched. We mm. must be, you know, well-read enough 
perhaps we can bring forth missing aspects of conversations and just fill in the gaps for people who might not necessarily be included in conversations, in strategies, in structures, and in, you know, the, the greater, the wider idea of inclusivity. Mm, absolutely. One of the things that, you know, was such a, a difficult thing for me to process, but it's an example that I would often use in my conversations around um inclusion and and how we actually take it for granted was using this pandemic as an an example um yeah and i would say juxtapose covid-19 with gender-based violence okay mm. to literally both pandemics both major crises look at the response to covid-19 and look at the response to gender-based violence mm. from a government perspective, from a resource perspective, from a business perspective. Everybody took action. Everybody allocated resources immediately because it is something that did not just inf- impact on women. It did not just impact mm. on black people. And once we actually start looking at those types of patterns, it changes the nature of the conversations that we have because then we're able to have the real conversations. Because once we start saying, you know, who does, if we, if we look at how a particular issue is being handled versus, I mean, mentioning COVID-19 versus Ebola, who's impacted? Because that directly influences how it is addressed and what resources are allocated to deal with that particular thing. And it's actually been very, it's been a very painful thing as a young black woman within the African continent to be able to observe this. Yes, absolutely, COVID-19 needed our attention because it is a very serious thing. Gender-based violence is a very serious thing. And other social and and health-related issues that largely impact black people or people of color or minorities are a major issue as well, but just do not receive the same amount of care and attention because it's our issue. Mm, mm, Absolutely, absolutely. Disheartening, actually. Absolutely. What do you think would be the utopia for you of the world of work? And what kind of leaders do you think we need in order to achieve that? Sure. Yo, I think that's actually a one-liner for me. Mm. Leaders that make spaces habitable for the people they're leading or leaders that make spaces habitable for its people. You know, mm. whether by, by if you're a president... Your responsibility, your sole responsibility, yes, me, coupled with a million things inside, mm. is to make your country habitable for its people. Your sole responsibility, as as you know, as as a, a leader in an organization or a team, for example, is to make the space habitable for the team. Mm. I think that's that's the one. You know, what what are mentally profitability, product delivery, all those things stem from a place of I'm able to operate effectively in the space. Mm. So I think that I think that's that. Just make your space habitable for its people. That's it. I think so. Mm, I completely agree with you. Now you have mm. a pretty impressive list of side hustles, which we've kind of alluded to early in our conversation. Yes. Because in addition to your, I mean, we'll say nine to five because that's just the general term. But we know as a consultant, it's never nine to five. Um, but you, <laughs> but you're also a facilitator, an MC, a radio host. 
Um, firstly, what sparked your decision to explore those paths in addition to your nine to five? And how have you been able to find balance if there even is such a thing? <laughs> ah, so the radio and facil- conversation facilitation one is actually quite silly how it started. Um, and I say it's silly because it just stemmed from, oh, Teresa, you have such a lovely voice. Oh, Teresa, you have such a lovely voice. Now I looked at that a couple of times and I heard that a couple of times and I thought to myself, oh, and you speak well. Mm. And I heard that a couple and I was like, mm, and I'm also underpaid in corporate. How do we, how do we take this and make money out of it? <laughs> Literally how it started. And I mean, I, 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 I have sort of, I think I did an interview with a, with a friend or something at Power, um, at Power 97 and they have, you know, the Power 97 Women's Day program that runs during Women's Month. And they asked me to host one of the shows. And after the show, it was like, mm, don't you want the show? Like, of course I do. And from there on, you know, it, it becomes a conversation of how do I, how do I sort of uh, operate effectively and optimally in both spaces? Because I will be tired. And I, I, I would like to see on Fridays, I'm grumpy. I'm not a nice person. Mm. I'm just tired. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and from there on, it became research on segmented sleep. I did a whole lot of reading on segmented sleep because I also wanted to make sure that it's as someone that suffers with anxiety or from mm-hmm. anxiety and lives with anxiety rather. And I constantly have my rescue drops in my back wherever I go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, panic attacks and anxiety attacks happen quite often here at home. So I needed to find something that's healthy. And, and I mean, I did a whole lot of reading on segmented sleep that you can actually get three hours of sleep after work go work for two, three hours and get three hours again. So, I mean, I get enough sleep. I'm not, I'm not exhausted. Mm. I get the same amount of sleep as everyone else that, you know, believes that they sleep overnight, except mine is just segmented. I think it, it and it also had to be a conversation with family as to say, I won't be able to visit as much as often anymore. Mm. I won't be, I won't lie. I've lost, I've lost a very close friendship mm. um, as a result of not being able to provide time. It hurts, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts. But I keep saying to myself that it's going to hurt different in future because mm-hmm. even if I go and say, hey, partner A, I, I, I'm terribly sorry about what I did. The truth of the matter is that I'm not in a position where I'm able to change that mm-hmm. at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And, and people are allowed to express their expectations to, um, and you're allowed to do the same. You're supposed to do the same as well. And if you can't meet them, let's have an honest conversation about how, you know, we're unable to meet each other's expectations. Mm. But otherwise, I think it, it's it's completely fulfilling because at first it seemed like it's two completely separate worlds, right? Mm. But more and more I'm realizing my role in corporate that it's not just to be a take or to just be a consultant, it's to drive conversation. Mm. And I'm really glad that I'm able to marry sort of everything that I do in one, even in the community. Mm. So the the balancing, is there a balance? No, there's not. Okay. There's no balance. There's no balance. I'm just grateful when I get to sleep. I'm grateful when I when I'm able to love and be happy and eat healthy. Mm. But yeah, otherwise, I mean, it's it's. I keep saying, ah, we'll see in future what it brings forth. Mm. And what do you want out of life? What do you feel is your your why your your reason for the decisions that you make for yourself? Sure. <laughs> what do I want out of life? And that's also quite an easy. I want peace. Mm. I just want to be in a peaceful place. That's with the, be it a romantic relationship, be it family, be it work. I just want peace. I want. I don't. As like I said, as someone who who lives with anxiety, I don't want to operate from an anxious space ever, mm. which comes with having open and honest conversations. Uh, you know whether or not expectations are met. 
But my why, so when I started working for the Blue Bank a couple of years ago, I probably always considered that place a home somehow. I don't know. Um, on the graduate program, and we were introduced to the company's motto slogan, you know, whatever it is called. And it, it, was, it was noted then to be, Africa is our home. We drive her growth. Mm. And my why, my why, and I feel more and more and more, more driven towards it, called by it. I, it. I feel spiritual more than anything, actually is that my why is to create inclusive methods in Africa. My why is to be part of teams that are creative of and implementing of inclusive methods in Africa. And at this point in time, because I'm in banking, I will say inclusive banking in Africa. Mm. When I move to telecoms, it will be inclusive telecoms in Africa, Mm. you know, but inclusive spaces in Africa for women, for children, for, for, for the black community. Mm. Um, to be heard, to be seen, to be given spaces of creativity, delivery, and creation. To just take the continent forward, it upsets me. It upsets me so much to you know to hear that. Oh my gosh, somebody's doing so well academically. They they even received a scholarship in Europe, and I'm like, great. Why can't we get to a point where we create centers of excellence here in the continent yeah. and we sort of create that that cycle here? But I think that's my wisely. I think inclusive methods in Africa. Mm, I love that. Now, I came across you on Twitter and I was just like, I, 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 I don't know her, but I love whatever it is that she's doing. <laughs> I don't even know what tweet it was that I saw. And I was just like, sent you a DM immediately. And I was just like, I want to interview you on my podcast. So for people who would love to engage with you further or connect with you online, where can they find you? So it's at Toriso Maloka on all spaces. Uh, that's Twitter, Instagram. I haven't used my Facebook. I don't think I remember my login details. <laughs> but it's at Toriso Maloka on Twitter and at Toriso Maloka on, on Instagram. And happy that, you know, we do DMs and take it for further conversations and, and spaces of creation. Uh, you know, just, I don't know, dual work somewhere. And I mean, I really, 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 really appreciate, you know, the reach out because you really, really are one of, you know, one of my friends, Nobita, always sort of, I remember when he bought me, um, we are the ones we need. And I thought to myself, how did you know I need this? And I, it was at a time where I was going through, I mean, you know, massive anxiety attacks in corporate and, and mm. to the point of resignation, really. So your work really is some is something that we all sort of, a lot of us hold on to, a lot of us run with, and a lot of us sort of use it as spaces to remember that <laughs> there's a bigger call beyond me. There's a bigger call beyond me. I can't quit now. Oh, thank you so much. That means so much. <laughs> I really, really appreciate that. Thank you for having this conversation with me. And I, I'm really looking forward to seeing all of the incredible things you're going to be doing with all of the different hats that you wear. And I wish you every success. <laughs> I appreciate you. Thank you so much to yourself and the team. Thanks again. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Workplace Revolution with Sihle Polani. I will see you again next time.